Hey everybody, Pastor Gary here. Today we're continuing our series <clears throat> entitled, Don't Worry. And we're going to be looking at the means that God has himself set in place to help us when we're faced with difficult or trying times. Today's passage deals specifically with persecution that may come against us because of our Christianity. In the Western world, physical persecution is not something that we live with daily. However, in much of Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, Christians oftentimes face daily persecution because of their faith in Jesus. Today's passage should be a reminder to the Western Church that there are those who will this very day give their lives in defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be actively lifting up those brothers and sisters in Christ all around this world who are suffering for Jesus. We also need to recognize that there are those in power and seeking power in our own country who are at times hostile to the church. Do I believe that persecution is right around the current corner? I don't believe so. However, I do believe that it is a reality that we, the church, need to be preparing for. Because it is possible that perhaps our children or grandchildren may have to face these realities right here in the land of the free. There are added applications for our passage when dealing with anxiety that we will discuss, but the major thrust of this passage is physical and political persecution under a government that is hostile to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. So let's look at today's passage. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul begins this section in verse 27, and he writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Paul is writing from prison, and the church in Philippi is coming under both physical and political persecution. And so Paul begins and writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Look, let's be really honest. Those of us here in America have no real idea what persecution for our faith is. We live relatively easy lives. Even the poor here in America are wealthy compared to most throughout the world. 
The problem with the ease with which we get to live life, I believe, actually has a significant negative impact on our walk with Jesus. We oftentimes don't feel like we need him. And so we rarely learn to live our lives in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. As a result, we don't tend to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, even though it is so much easier for us here in the West to do so. We fail often. We need to constantly be looking to Jesus and looking to make much of him and less of us. It is only then that we can conduct ourselves in a way worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then Paul begins to lay out a difficult truth for the Philippians. And he writes, Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, Paul is being honest about the fact that he doesn't know what is to come of his current imprisonment. His death is a possible reality that they all need to face, and they need to face it head on. Paul continues and he writes, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. The unity of the church during times of persecution is the foundation upon which we will stand in order to find the strength of God well up within us. So many in the church today face real persecution every day. And the greatest means by which God has ordained for them to find grace and mercy is through the church. We here in the West need to see that we have a role to play in helping and aiding our brothers and sisters in the East who face persecution often. Paul then writes, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. We need to be constantly aware that there are and will always be those who are being persecuted for their faith until Christ returns for his bride. We as a church here at Living Way need to find ways that we can contend as one man with our brothers and sisters throughout the world that face persecution. We need to be willing to read their stories and enter into their sufferings with them so that we can pray as one united massive body of Christ all across this world. Just as the church in Philippi was praying for Paul, we need to be in prayer and supporting those who are suffering now, just as Paul suffered in the past. Paul continues and writes in verse 28, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The beginning of this passage is pretty straightforward, but the last portion is more difficult to understand, and that's because of the way that the NIV translates it. The greatest difficulty, though, is how does this apply to us? Paul begins by saying, do not be afraid of those who oppose you. The church in the West doesn't face physical or political persecution the way that it did during Paul's time, or the way that it does throughout much of the world today. There are hints and possibilities on the horizon, but right now we have no idea what it means to be truly persecuted for the faith. So, we don't face a daily fear that there are those in our community that seek our death because of our faith. I don't want to make light of this passage and try to apply it too much of what to and try to apply it to much of what are our daily struggles that we face today. But then how does this apply to us? We need to recognize that there are many in our world today that do face the real possibility of forced conversion, forced marriages, or death simply because they have placed their faith in Jesus. We also need to recognize the real possibility that this could come 
to the West. So we need to be prepared for that possibility. Perhaps not so much for many adults today, but for our children and our grandchildren. Paul continues in this verse, and the NIV reads, This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. The text here is very difficult to translate, but I have to admit that I don't believe this translation makes a lot of sense. How is your conduct concerning the gospel of Jesus a sign to those persecuting the church that they will be destroyed? You see the problem? If that is truly what is meant, then they're missing the sign. Another possible understanding of this passage is that the sign is actually for the church. So it would be better to read it as saying that the coming destruction of the unbelieving persecutors is a sign to the faithful in Christ Jesus that they will be saved by God. This translation, I believe, actually fits much better within our passage as well as with the larger letter to the Philippians. So Paul is saying, stand firm in the faith, knowing that God has ordained the eventual eternal destruction of those who persecute you, and that no matter what you face, he's already saved you from within that which you are now facing. Paul then writes in verse 29, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Paul says that God the Father, on behalf of Christ Jesus, has granted you the ability to believe on him. This is an absolutely amazing truth to rest upon. This is saying that you didn't work out your own salvation, but that God has done so. So if you didn't work it out, you cannot work yourself out of it. This is a phenomenal truth to rest in when persecution comes. Your salvation is secure in the hand of God the Father. But Paul's not done. He also says that it has also been granted to us on behalf of Christ that we should also suffer for him. Hold on. Wait just one second. We were doing just fine up to this point. But the truth is that Christ came as an example for each one of us. And he didn't come as the righteous ruler of all things. That is still yet to come. Jesus came as the suffering servant, which is exactly what we are all called to become on behalf of Christ Jesus. And that truth is an amazing thing to rest upon as well. Whatever this world may throw at us, it has been ordained by God the Father. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. And so because of this truth, we can rest in the fact that God will see us through to our final salvation. Paul finishes in this verse, in verse 30, and he writes, Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says, just as God has ordained suffering for me, he has ordained the same for you. And so we all suffer the same for Jesus. So don't feel alone in your suffering. Remember that there are those all across this world suffering just as you are suffering. Do not feel alone. One of the greatest difficulties with anxiety and stress and depression is that we tend to feel all alone in our struggles. This is just not true. It is a lie from Satan in order to get you not to lean upon the body of Christ for help in your hour of need. Don't believe the lie. 
please. You are not alone. Others have, and probably are right now, suffering just as you are. Do not be alone in your suffering. Reach out to the church and experience Jesus' healing hand through those that have suffered just as you are now suffering. This section continues in chapter 2, verse 1, with these four if statements. Paul writes, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Oftentimes, when trying to determine the original meaning of a passage, the best thing is to ask questions about the verse. One that we sometimes miss when dealing with this passage is, does Paul believe that these things may not be true of the Philippian church? I would say that based on the little that we have learned of the Philippian church so far, that is the furthest thing from Paul's mind. The word if can be used in the Greek, just as it is at times in English, in a rhetorical fashion. So Paul isn't asking whether or not these things are true of them. He is asking in this manner so that the reader understands that they are true. So we could effectively read the verse and substitute the word since for every instance of the word if. These things are true because the church in Philippi is in Christ. Let's look at each of these truths and see how they are then used by Paul as he continues in this passage to actually combat anxiety. The first statement reads, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, a church that is filled with those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus should be two things that combat anxiety in a massive way. First, they are an encouragement to one another in the midst of the daily struggles that come against each and every one of us. And they are united as one body. It is this unity that makes the church able to stand firm in the face of persecution. And so we should, each one of us, be fighting for us all as a church to be of one mind, one spirit, one body in Christ. There are two places that I believe Satan seeks more than any other to find and bring disunity. First is in the marriage. That's a whole nother sermon series in and of itself. Second, however, is in the church. I have served now in three churches as a pastor, and Autumn and I have attended two other churches as members. The greatest struggles that any of these churches faced historically always revolved around a disagreement that brought disunity to the body. Disagreements are going to happen. This is the natural reality of life. However, we must never allow our disagreement to rise to a level that the unity of the body of Christ suffers. Churches as of recent have split over music style into two different bodies, still meeting in the same church just at different times. You can argue with me and say that these aren't church splits, but that is effectively what has occurred because it was the easiest answer to a divisive subject. The unity of the body needs to stand above all things, and we need to guard it above all things. The only reason that I can see for a body to struggle against being united is when there is a question of heretical theology. Otherwise, all else must be sacrificed for the unity of Christ. The color of the carpet, whether or not a church should have a steeple, the question of organ, piano, or keyboards, the use of drums during worship, nope, none of it. 
What about the picture of Adam and Eve in the kid ministry area? Should they have navels or not? Yeah, a church actually split, split over that one. These may all seem silly to us, but Satan was able to use every single one of these subjects as a means to break apart the body of Christ and cause division. Here's the reality. A house divided cannot stand. What's really funny about all of this is that the persecuted church would look at us like we were insane for bickering over such trifle ideas. Their lives are on the line for their faith in Christ Jesus. That's why when persecution comes against the church, their numbers dwindle quickly. Because only true believers will stand firm in the face of possible death for their faith in Christ Jesus. And when our numbers are thinned, those that remain will stand firm shoulder to shoulder and encourage one another to keep the face the faith in the face of whatever may come because they face life together as one body. This combination of encouragement through oneness is a massive means by which God destroys anxiety in the midst of the body of Christ. Next, Paul says that if there is any comfort from his love, in the original text, the pronoun his is actually not present, and it doesn't appear based on the passage that it should be either. This should read, if there is any comfort from love. Just like the previous encouragement came from the body of Christ because of the unity of the body, the same continues to be true here. Because of the unity of the body, we will naturally comfort one another because of our love for one for each other. Next, Paul says, if any fellowship with the Spirit, unfortunately because of the NIV's focus on the love of Jesus in the previous phrase, they make this one about the Spirit of God as well, but it misses what is truly the point that Paul is getting at, which is the benefits of a united body of Christ. Jesus, and so I believe that Paul's intent and the original Greek are actually better represented by translating this as, if any spiritual fellowship. There is something glorious to gather as one united body and to worship God together in one spirit. This practice I have seen helps to bring an even greater level of unity with the body of Christ. This is true for marriage as well. I don't believe that it is healthy for a couple to worship at two different churches. They need to be of one spirit in their fellowship and worship. This goes a long way to help build the couple together as one. And so, the same is true of a church. The church that experiences the presence of the Holy Spirit through worship is naturally brought closer together through the power of the worship experience. So, the church cannot see worship as just something that gets added on as a musical performance just before and perhaps right after the all-important sermon, or communion tacked on some point in the month. It is the entirety of the worship experience that brings fellowship, that defines us as one body. It is the entirety of the worship experience that draws us all closer to God in fellowship with Him as we together worship in fellowship. And the result of that experience is a greater sense and level of oneness in the body of Christ. This is perhaps a primary reason so many churches struggle to expand to more than one worship service. And the truth is, many times, it is an unhealthy decision that is being made for the wrong reasons. The fellowship of the body feels broken. We need to guard and deeply value our times of worship and fellowship together 
because of the unity that comes through those times. I know personally that those times in which I have been suffering with the greatest amounts of anxiety, worship and fellowship with the body has always helped. It is also why communion needs to be an essential element of our times of worship as the body of Christ. Finally, in just this first verse, Paul writes, If any tenderness and compassion... Let's be honest, at this point, as we looked at each of the previous points, this is only the natural result of such a united body of Christ. When anyone suffers, the body responds with tenderness and compassion towards those that are suffering. A church that is united will naturally respond this way. Look, if you're experiencing anxiety today, you need to turn to the body of Christ for help. You need to speak up about whatever it is that is causing you stress or pain. Then the united body of Christ can come around you and see you encouraged and comforted. Then you will experience the healing salve of the Holy Spirit as we worship and experience fellowship as one body. And you will experience the tender caring compassion of Jesus through his body, the church. Here's the hard part for so many in the West. None of this can be true if you say you are a Christian that doesn't need to attend the church. The primary means that God uses in this world to combat anxiety for his children is the church. Paul continues in verse 2 and he writes, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. I love how Paul addresses the church here like a loving father to his children. You're such a joy to me. Now, complete that joy. He's then going to lay out for them the means by which the church is to become one body. He first calls them to be like-minded. He wants them to be in agreement on what it is that they have been called to do as a church. Their mission is the gospel of Jesus. There is no other mission but that one. Anything that does not advance the mission is a means that can be used to bring disunity within the church. The church needs to be single-minded in what it has been called to be and to become. Everything else falls to the side when we are all like-minded as one body. Next, Paul asks them to all have the same love. Can there be multiple types of love? Well, yes, there can. There is the love that is meant to be found within the church. Its source and its power are found in Christ Jesus and in Him alone. Like-minded Christians will be true believers. And as true believers, they should then all be filled with the love of Christ. But... We can and do, but we can and do get in the way. We need to make less of ourselves so that we can make much of him. Next, Paul calls the church to be one in spirit and purpose. This is related to being like-minded again. If we are of one mind, then the body, the church, will naturally know the best next step for the church. There will not be a need to set up multiple committees and have long meetings about what we should be doing as a congregation. We will, as a body, understand what is the next best step. We may have disagreement, but the body will truly know the best answer. The body simply needs to speak and stand firm as one body. When we have grown together in this manner, the world will see an organization that has one heartbeat, one soul, one spirit, one purpose. Paul finishes this section up with the one thing more than any other that is necessary for the body of Christ to function in oneness. He writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Humility is the key. It is our greatest struggle as fallen human beings. It is our greatest weakness to success as a church. And without humility, we will become the source of much anxiety for the church. We need to constantly examine ourselves and our own motivations to see if we are seeking our own glory or the glory of the church and the glory of God. The hardest thing for any of us to do is to set aside our own desires and wants in favor of the church. However, it is the failure to do so that has brought so much pain and destruction to so many and such a blight upon public opinion of the church. Each of us needs to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and find freedom from ourselves as we serve God and one another. Paul concludes by writing, Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. We have a modern saying today that asks the question of each of us that sums up what Paul is writing. How are you being part of the solution and not part of the problem? Because sometimes the best solution is not our solution. It is not our hopes. It is not our desires for the church, but it is what is best. Are we willing to sacrifice all that we are to see the church magnified and God glorified? The only way to do this is to make less of us and much of him. So what? Look, I've already throughout the sermon touched on how to apply this passage well. Let me simply summarize Jesus' greatest desire for his church. We must seek to have the same love, to be united in soul, to think one thing, to do nothing from selfish ambition, to do nothing from empty conceit, and to look out for the interests of others. And all of this is possible because we are united with Christ so as to bring encouragement to one another. We receive comfort through the love of the body. We can experience fellowship and worship in one spirit. And we can experience compassion through the tender love of the body. How do we cultivate the humility that is necessary for us to stand firm as one body? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a martyred pastor in Germany during World War II who suffered under the heavy-handed persecution of the Nazis. During this time, he gave us these seven principles towards cultivating humility, and I think they're fitting. First, he writes, Hold your tongue, refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother. Second, cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that you, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by His grace. Third, listen long and patiently so that you will understand your fellow Christian's need. Fourth, refuse to consider your time and calling so valuable that you cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. Fifth, bear the burden of your brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. Sixth, declare God's word to your fellow believers when they need to hear it. And finally, understand that Christian authority is characterized by service, 
and does not call attention to the person who performs that service. We need to fix our eyes upon Jesus and follow after him. Guess what? That's exactly what Paul is going to discuss in the next section. When we stand as God has called each one of us, as an active member of the body of Christ, seeking the best for those around us and seeking to glorify Jesus above all else, if and when persecution or difficulties come, we will stand firm and anxiety will be destroyed. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for making our salvation certain and sure. We thank you for ordaining that just as our Savior suffered, we too shall suffer, and that through that suffering, you will be glorified. Jesus, help us to humble ourselves before you so that we might magnify you in our lives all the more, all to your glory. Holy Spirit, fill us with your love so that the love might so that that love might overflow into the body. Help us as one body stand firm with one mind seeking one purpose, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And now, may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed by God this week, so that you might be a blessing to those whom God places in your path. Amen. And have a great week.